I just want you to know that I see you wanting some of that honey. All right, that's for the children. It's not for you, it's for the children. You can get some honey somewhere else. Some of you are lucky you have your honey sitting next to you. God bless you. But that honey's for the children. I, uh, I'm really excited uh, because I get to tell a story this morning. My opening story is a story about my mom, and my beautiful mom is here. Mom, you want to wave? Yeah. I love that lady. Yeah. So I, I, I want to put up the, the title slide for our, uh, for our message this morning, Us, How the Gospel Reframes the Other. Now, there are pieces of that that you may understand fully, and there might be a piece of that one that you don't understand. What do we exactly mean by the other? Let's spend a little bit of time on that, and then we'll jump right into the gospel. Uh, when I was growing up, I uh, was, loved my mother so much, and we need to keep reiterating how much I love my mom. I love my mother so much that when I went to the store with her, uh, that's an act of sacrificial giving on my part, to be well-behaved child in the store and accompanying her to the store. We would go to the store, and we would buy stuff, and we would spend time together. Um, and there was an event uh, that stood out in my mind for the longest time, and to this day, I still recall this event. Uh, you see, you hear me talking, and, and you don't hear, I hope, an accent. Every now and then, uh, you might hear an inflection. If I get really passionate, uh, there'll be like a twist in my words. Sometimes the audio guys are telling me, Jose, your S's are out of control. We got to tweak the audio a little bit, and that's because where I come from, and Joe can testify to this, the pastors like to accentuate the S's a lot, and somehow I grew up hearing that, and that's what tends to happen, Um, but I remember going to the store with my mom, and believe you me, she was well-versed in store talk and in store policies, so we go to the desk, and in this particular time, we had something that we were returning, still had the tags on it, uh, but I think at that time she had forgotten the receipt. So she goes to the counter, and she explains this to the uh, customer service representative, and she's explaining what she's trying to do. And the interaction that took place next was really interesting, because they, this person did two things. The first thing they did was to talk louder, and the second thing they did was to talk slower. And I thought, why is she doing that? Well, if you hear my mom talk even to this day, uh, I left the Dominican Republic when I was five years old. She left in her mid-30s. So what do you you suppose she still has a strong accent? And I was looking at this exchange, and I thought, my mom's not dumb, and my mom's not deaf. And I thought, this person here really doesn't know who we are. We aren't part of her us. We're them. We're them people who have an accent. So that's kind of what we mean and refer to when we say the other. It's, it's, it's those peoples or those groupings of people who when we think about them, there's something about who they are or how they function or how they talk or how they work that we, that we refer to them as them and not necessarily us. Another, another example of this, uh, growing up, going to youth revivals and youth meetings, uh, we always talked about how uh, we, us, need to guard ourselves against temptation because 
them out there is trying to tempt us and we want to just make sure we stay away from that kind of peer pressure. There's this language of us and them. That's how we create a sense of the other. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the gospel, when we live it out, when we ingest it, when it lives in us, reframes and redefines for us what and who us is. Excellent English grammar, I know. Let's discover, according to the gospel, the way the gospel sees the world, who is us? Who is us? Let's go uh, right away, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to put the text up on the screen for you. Uh, If you want to find it in your Bible, it says this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. Genesis 1, 11, we find ourselves in the middle of the creation story. God came to this uninhabited space, unformed, unshaped, scary space, and he begins to create a habitable space so that he can have a people who he communes with. This is just one moment in that seven-day creation week, but at the end of that week, all is made clear. God is creating all of his beautiful stuff so that he can commune with us and be with us. That's the first creation story, and, and, it's, and it's a beautiful creation story. I want to take you to this, another creation story in Genesis. Let's go Genesis 7.1. It says this, the Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Okay, so what is this? What is this ark thing? Well, after creation, you go back, Genesis chapter 3, we remember the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent and the eating of the fruit, and we remember that there was a distrust and a disconnect with God, and they sinned. What does sin mean? Practically speaking, two things, broken relationship with God and broken relationship with one another. So God says in that moment, you know what? I don't want to exist in brokenness. I love you too much. Let's find a way where we can all be together, and I promise you through your seed, and here's the first messianic promise, through your seed, there's going to be one who's going to crush the heel of the serpent, and we will then be reconciled through this. And this is, you know, prefiguring Jesus Christ. Well, things get crazy. We're moving quickly here, folks. Things get crazy. The world is, is growing and striving, but it's growing in the wrong way. Jesus, God looks down on the earth. He sees one person who loves him, who is righteous, who's doing good, and not just doing what is right in their own eyes. This person is the Noah. He comes to Noah and he says, Noah, let's put you in the ark. I I still, my heart and my passion and my desires to deliver all of humanity, and, and we need to preserve this seed. We need to preserve this promise. So through this, through the, through this moment now, we're, your family, we're going to do that. So he, he has his flood. It takes out, changes the entire ecosystem. Only those in the ark are saved. That's the second time that God is doing a creative activity that is global, right? Third time. Let's skip ahead. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Come, they said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. At first glance, this does not seem like a problem, right? They want to build something. Who can fault them for wanting to build something? But it's, it's what and why they're wanting to build something. At the very end of that verse, it says, so we won't be scattered 
anymore. And, and, and the, the other piece just before that, that they want to build a tower that reaches high into the heavens. And what's really interesting about that is that this is the same spirit and attitude that the serpent confronted Eve with, isn't it? He says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this truth? Did God really? And just this suspect, and these people are having the same kind of suspicion towards God. They don't really trust God. God had told Noah, never again will I cover the whole earth with water. You remember that? Never again will I cover the whole earth with water. And here they are, and they're saying, you know what? We're not sure that God is believable. We're not sure that we can, and we've been using this word a lot in the last couple of months, we're not sure that we can put our trust in him. And they say, we will put our trust in me. So they're going to build this tower. Check this out. This is what uh, Patriarch's Prophets has to say about this particular moment. It says this. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Many seek to make a heaven for themselves. Trampling upon human rights and disregarding divine authority, the proud may be for a time in great power and may see success in all that they undertake, but in the end, they will find only disappointment and wretchedness. Wow. That's what was in the heart of the people when they were there at the Tower of Babel. The sameness made them all the same in the spirit of self-centered, self-gratifying, self-loving, self-serving, self-interested way of being that only leads to self-destruction. And God sees this self-centered, self-loving, self-gratifying, self-serving group of people and he says, I have to save them for themselves. So what does he do? What does he do? Let's continue reading. Genesis eleven six. 6, it says, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. God sees their end in mind. He knows that there is a way that seems right to man, and that way leadeth unto death. And he says, I have got to save these people from themselves. I love them too much. I have to find a way to make them uh, (laughs) savable. And so what does he do? He confuses their language. Now, I gotta, we, you know, we look at Bible language and we look at what this story is called. It's called the story of the Tower of Babel. And we really have some really good reasons to have some angst about anything that has to do with confusion, don't we? We don't like confusion. But here's an instance where God is equipping humanity with a delivery system. And that's what we have to understand. It's not that God is causing confusion. It's that God has identified a delivery system by which he can communicate his gospel. Because he understands that with all the sameness that was going on, these people had purposed in their hearts to rebel. And to break that, he had to create something different. So that's what he did. He created something different. He created different languages. And this allowed them to group and spread and group and spread and group and spread all over the world so that God could accomplish his purpose of what? Saving all of humanity. Because in their sameness, there was only one path. In their sameness, they were leading themselves to rebellious and destructive path. So God used... Not sameness. God used the gift of giving them different languages so that he could cause a break in their rebellion so that the gospel could still be delivered. 
Here's the blessing of Genesis 11. This is how I put it. It says, in the genesis of our story, God's last global intercession was to shift the social construct to deliver us from ourselves. Isn't that exactly what's happening there? And this is how Ellen White says it in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Next slide. In mercy, we'll put that up there. In mercy, he confounded their speech, thus putting a check on their purposes of rebellion. It was an act of mercy that God came down and messed all that stuff up because he knew that that was the only way that he could deliver God's people uh, and save humanity and bring them closer to him. So that was three major global events at the start of our history, the creation, the recreation through the flood, and this moment at the Tower of Babel where God confuses the languages and sends them all around the globe. But that's not where the story ends. Then God did something even more amazing. He, had, he, he, he brought into existence, into being something so powerful that it's at the center of our history and it's the center of our story. And to, to help us get perspective on that moment, I invite you to turn with me to your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second, it'll be on the screens if you want to follow along. Powerful, powerful passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Just hit the pause button there. There is a way to see other people and that way is a worldly way. And what I want to know is I want to see others, I want to see others the way that the gospel wants me to see them because I don't want to see them the way that the world sees them. So he's, he's saying there's a way here <laughs> that's a worldly point of view. The, and going on, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, I like that. The ministry of reconciliation. Folks, let's make this abundantly clear this morning. It's right here in the passage. The work of reconciliation is gospel work. It is only possible when you have the love of God in you, when you have yielded all of yourself to all of him. Because any other way is self-interested, self-loving, self-serving, self-destructive kind of way. It's through the power of the gospel that we even have a desire and passion and interest to see the work of reconciliation take place. What's this work of reconciliation? It happens two ways. The same two ways that sin caused disruption. Reconciliation is between us and God and us and one another. Isn't that powerful? Now, here's, here's what's really exciting is that this is not the first time we're introduced to this concept of being reconciled this way and this way because, and you know this, as good Sabbath-believing people. We love the Sabbath. We can go right to the, to the commandments in Exodus, the fourth commandment in Exodus, and the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy, and it tells us the same thing. It says we're restructuring in the Sabbath. We, we completely restructure all social constructs, and we boil ourselves down to two classes, two classes of being. Very simple. On the Sabbath, the first class, first and foremost class is which, is which one? 
God as creator. And in Deuteronomy, God as redeemer, right? That's the first class. But on the Sabbath, what happens to all the other social constructs that we, under, that we know and that we understand? Whether that be socioeconomic, whether that be uh, gender, whether that be animal or human, everybody else falls into one class. And what class is that? Creation. <laughs> Creation. What, are you telling me that God meant for the Sabbath to be a reminder that there are only two classes of people, two classes of beings, the creator and the creation. God's intention all along is to bring these worlds together, bring us closer to him, bring us closer to one another. And the Sabbath is an instrument by which we can remind ourselves that if I want to worship with you on Sabbath, I better treat you like God's creation all week long. That's, that's the gospel. That's how the gospel becomes real. It's not that just on Sabbath or just on the seventh day, I am now to be a Christian. It's that I recognize, and the gospel allows me to see that all of creation serves a creator, and every single day, I honor God when I bring dignity and honor to others. So that when I see them on Sabbath, you know what? I may be the boss during the week, but on the Sabbath, there's only one head, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so Paul doesn't finish in verse 19. He makes his point a little bit more clear. Verse 20, we'll put that up right on the screen. It says this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love that ambassador language. Because you're an ambassador to a place that you perhaps do not know, that you perhaps don't eat the same food, perhaps don't speak the same language, perhaps don't move in the same way, your accent might be different, and God is inviting us through the gospel of reconciliation, through the message of reconciliation, to come out of what is common and familiar and known to us and be busy moving out into the rest of the world. I got one more point to make, and I promise I'll do it in just a few minutes. Here's the blessing that comes when we understand the gospel of reconciliation. It says this, through the true, consequential, everlasting story of Jesus, the gospel, God's global intercession was to restore all of humanity into relationship with him. That's what Jesus did. He made it possible for all of us, all of us, to come together. Why did he do that? Folks, John 3.16 is pretty clear. We'll put it up on the screen if it's not clear to you already. Because he loves us. God's motivation, God's motivation is other-centered loving. He's not interested in loving himself. He wants to love on you. And he wants you to live your life and he wants me to live my life in the same way where I'm, where I'm focused on pouring out my love on other people. Because guess what? The way that God sees it, we stand equally fallen and we stand equally redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ. May look different, may work differently, may come out in a different way, but at the end of the day, we all stand fallen equally, we all stand redeemed equally. Didn't end with Jesus, though, because we have this big Jesus moment. Now what happens? We have another then-God moment. 
And I want to skip you right ahead to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to end right here in Acts chapter 2. Here's a story. Jesus Christ has died. He's rested, resurrected, and that's, we got to remember that. Jesus resurrected. This is a true story. Resurrected, spent some time with the disciples, goes back up to heaven. His disciples are gathered in a room, and they're praying. And here's what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. At this moment in history, God is still very interested in delivering humanity. He has given his son, Jesus Christ. He has died. He has resurrected. God still needs to communicate this amazing story to all of the world. And he wants to do it in the easiest, simplest way possible. So he has two choices right now. He has two choices. When the Holy Spirit comes down, he could do one of two things. One, he could go back to having everybody talk the same way. Isn't that, couldn't he do that? Isn't God capable of doing that? He could say, you know what? This will make things so much easier if everybody just talks the same language, talks the same way. This will make the gospel communication easy. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, no, no. He takes these people who have given themselves up to him for his purposes, and, 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 he, and, the, and the Holy Spirit comes down and changes the way that they talk. You know, Paul later on goes on to say, to the Jew I am, Jew to the Greek I am, Greek. And what he's doing is he's perpetuating this model that when you have the Holy Spirit on, culture doesn't get in the way. You can put on whatever that gulb of culture is and still communicate the gospel. Here's, here's what uh, Ellen White says in Acts of the Apostles about this particular event. It says, this diversity of languages would have been a great hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. God, therefore in a miraculous manner, supplied the deficiency of the apostles. The Holy Spirit did for them that which they could not have accomplished for themselves in a lifetime. They could now proclaim the truths of the gospel abroad, speaking with accuracy the languages of those from whom they were laboring. This miraculous gift was a strong evidence to the world that their commission bore the signet of heaven. From this time forth, the language of the disciples was pure, simple, and accurate, whether they spoke in their native tongue or in a foreign language. Wow. Wow. That's how God decided to deliver humanity again. He decided to equip his followers. He decided to give his people who, who loved him so much and understood that there was, there was a work to be done. He equipped them with, to be able to speak love in any language. Because that's the gospel story. It's about God's love for us. Here's our blessing this morning. In the story of Pentecost, God's global intercession was to infuse himself across all social constructs so that all may receive the ministry of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Isn't that the truth? God is continually working to save humanity through us or in spite of us. So what's our, what's, what's our appeal this morning? As we're looking at communion and we're celebrating the gift that Jesus has done, this is a gift 
of reconciliation. This is a message of reconciliation. Here's the invitation. You remember the children's story just a moment ago. Here's the invitation. It's, it's this. The Holy Spirit is the pollen that allows for the garden of humanity to flourish. The beesness of Jesus' followers is to see the nectars in others so we may be carriers of the gospel. That's our beesness, isn't it? That's our beesness. We need, to, we need to be drawn and see the sweetness in others, even people who we may not like, and most importantly, people who we do not understand. If we can see the sweetness in them, we carry with us the pollen of the Holy Spirit to be able to communicate to them this gospel story. And in doing so, the garden of humanity flourishes. I don't know about you, I'm not interested in a heaven of sameness. I'm interested in a heaven full of people who have this, this ministry of reconciliation down, who love God with all of their heart and soul, and who love each other with all of their heart and soul. Let's not allow anything, anything, to get in the way of this gospel work. See others through the same vision that Jesus sees you. Yeah? Amen. This morning, we want to invite you to, to take some first steps in that experience through what we call the ceremony of foot washing. And everyone here is having an opportunity to do that. Uh, in just a moment, I'll pray, and after that, the organ will start playing. We invite you to go out and go downstairs. We have room for men, women, and family. And if you're not able to go up and downstairs, or it's particularly difficult for you, we also have a space right here in the nursery. And really, let's, when we're in those rooms, let's, let's confirm something, all right? We all are in need of a Savior, and we all need to deliver the Savior to each other, right? Tell that gospel story. Take that posture of Jesus. Love one another. Serve one another. And may our witness, may our witness testify of God's enduring love. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you have been relentless in pursuing after us and using every possible mean to reconcile us to you. May we be so grateful <laughs> and may we, may we internalize this gospel truth so much that we begin to see others differently and in such a way that we recognize that they're in need of a savior too. Be with us now as we part ways and, and we take the posture of that servant leader, Jesus Christ, just, just before he died on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.